I became a Christ follower like many people do, pray what they call the sinner's prayer uh, and be born again of the Spirit. That was my first turning, if you will, from the world to Christ. About nine years later, there was a second turning to that I wasn't aware when I first began the journey. And that was when I started worshiping at Rexel Alliance Church, the church where I eventually became a pastor. That's where I began to learn all about the body of Christ, the fact that my transaction with Jesus, while <coughs> personal, wasn't necessarily private, that I was part of a larger body of believers and we were to live in an interconnected, interdependent relationship, being served by the other members of the body and serving other members. That, if you will, was my second turning, nine years after the first one, and that was from self to the church. But there was a third turning, not only from the world to Christ, not only from self to the church, but then from the church to where? That would take another 14 years or so and develop much more gradually. Now, most of you here listening to me this morning have probably taken that first step of turning from the world to Christ. And if there are some of you who haven't, I trust that these messages that you've heard so far, uh, the story of Rahab, the story of Ruth, and last week especially learning about how far Jesus came, that these stories taken together would have at least increased your desire uh, and maybe your willingness to explore this personal relationship with Jesus a little bit more so that you too might take that first step. But as I said, most of you have taken that step. How about the second one? Have you had that second turning then from self to the church. And I'm not talking just about membership. I'm talking about that sense that we are part of an interconnected body where you are invested in other members, uh, building into them through your unique gifts and wiring and shape and receiving from other people and increasingly committed to that body and serving Christ together. If you haven't, you know, you probably need to find out a little bit more about membership in your church, talk to one of the pastors and find out how you can get engaged and become a more meaningful contributor. This could become a great step uh, and a New Year's resolution, if you will, for yourself. But again, perhaps many of you have made that commitment as well. You've made that turning from the world to Christ and from self to the church. Ah, but how about the third one that I was talking about? Well, that brings us back to the genealogy that we've been studying all this time. Now, our usual reaction to genealogies is that, ah, we're boring. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, mostly unpronounceable name, people coming from a cultural background that we know nothing about at all. And so we tend to skip over them. And frankly, as I told you, I read through the Bible every year. I mentioned that last year, last, last week in the message. But uh, I skip over a lot of the genealogies. But the first one is different because it's put right at the very beginning of what we call the New Testament. The, the very first opening verses of the New Testament, introducing the four Gospels, the story of Jesus, has this genealogy in it. And therefore, it behooves us to pay attention to it. And we've been looking at it for the last uh, three weeks. But as we conclude this series, we're going to step back a little bit from the details, from the specific women that we've been looking at, to the genealogy as a whole, its placement where it is, right in the very beginning of the New Testament, and the inclusion of these women as taken as a whole. Because those are some significances that we might miss when we have gone much, much deeper into the individual stories. Because you see, there is no genealogy in Mark's gospel. There's no genealogy in John's gospel. 
and the genealogy in Luke's gospel comes in chapter 3 and it has no women in it. Therefore, Matthew's genealogy is different in terms of its content and in terms of its placement. And we're going to kind of take a look at it as a whole. Where, in fact, does it appear? Why does it appear at that point? Why are these women included? Why are three of those five of them non-Israelite people? So we're going to kind of look at the big picture today. And that's what's going to give us our answer to that third shift that we all need to make from the world to Christ, from self to the church, and then from the church to what? Well, let's begin. What does the opening verse say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very opening verse, first verse in the New Testament, introducing the story of Jesus, immediately connects Jesus with Abraham and with David. In other words, it con connects Jesus with the whole history of Israel, going back centuries, millennia. That emphasizes for us the fact that Jesus did not appear in a historical vacuum to start this new religion called Christianity. Rather, he came as a final stage of the fulfillment of God's great covenant promises to Abraham and to David. For example, what does he say uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3? And I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. This is God speaking. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So way back in the Abrahamic covenant, the very beginning of the story of Israel, Abraham, their father, was blessed in order to be a blessing way beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. No wonder the genealogy that follows immediately after that includes the women and includes three who are non-Israelites. So the opening salvo of the New Testament, and by the way, that continues all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's a historical portion of the New Testament. All the epistles are explanations afterwards. It's all about the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing of Abraham to all the nations of the world. And so the opening salvo is Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed. And here are these three of the five women who are Gentiles who are put right into that. And Gordon Eshleman, many, many years ago, uh, he was an editor of a World Christian magazine, said this, If Jesus had mothers from four different racial groups in his ancestry, if in fact he had Canaanite, which was Rahab, Moabite, which was Ruth, Hittite, which was Bathsheba, and Jewish, which was Mary, ancestry, then not only did Jesus get his blood from the world and shed his blood for the world, it was mixed racial blood that was shed on the cross. Now, this is not a medical statement, folks, so doctors don't get excited about that. I freely admit that. This is the theological statement. If Jesus... Not only did Jesus get his blood from the world and shed his blood for the world, it was mixed racial blood that was shed on the cross for the sins of the world. In a time of enormous racism around the world, that is indeed the best possible news to get. And then in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, which continues the story of the birth of Jesus, only this time uh, from the angel appearing to Joseph and all that, we remember the wise men, the magi, coming from the east again, Probably, almost certainly, non-Israelites. And what does it say in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. These are the first worshippers in the New Testament. The very first worshippers of Jesus in the New Testament that is recorded for us are non-Israelites. So you put it all together, what do you get? 
The first book of the New Testament opens by connecting the story of Jesus to the story of Abraham, through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. It follows with a genealogy where there are women included that is unique. Three of those five women are non-Israelites and the first worshippers are also non-Jews or Gentiles. See the significance of that. The focus from the very beginning is the inclusiveness of the gospel beyond Israel to every nation in the world. That's the significance of what we've been looking at in terms of the detailed stories when you step back and look at it. Now, as we continue with the story of Jesus and his ministry, you will find that he continues to reflect this emphasis. So it's not just the beginning and then everything is to Israel. Jesus in his ministry continues to reinforce the fact that he came to fulfill the Abrahamic blessing, to be a blessing to the nations of the world. For example, you know that Jesus settled. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 ends with Jesus settling in Nazareth. He goes off to Egypt for a little while, of course, because Herod was trying to kill him. But then after Herod dies, he comes back. The angel tells Joseph, you can now come back home. And he settled in Nazareth. Well, he didn't settle in the power centers of Jerusalem and Judea, where all the, where the temple was and the priests were, and the synagogue were. It was way up north, Gentiles. Galilee was Gentile territory. In fact, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, the northernmost province. So Jesus settles on the border of Jewish Gentile territory. And then as he grows up and he begins and he preaches his first sermon. Now, while Matthew records the Beatitudes uh, as the first sermon that is recorded, historically, the first sermon that he preached was in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Capernaum, I think, in Nazareth, where Jesus walks into the synagogue and as is the custom the rabbi at some point says, does anybody have a word to read? Will you come and read scripture? So Jesus reads the scriptures and he turns to Isaiah chapter 61. And that's where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the uh, acceptable year of the Lord, the Lord's favor, to release the captives, to set the prisoners free, to heal the blind. And then he says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your sight. Oh, you can just imagine the shock of the people. But they were amazed. They said, oh, this carpenter's son, he grew up in our midst. Where did he get all this amazing wisdom from? He's just amazing. He's just captivating. They had everything good to say until Jesus followed that sermon with a couple of illustrations. And the illustration was way back from the time of Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus tells two stories. One, one there was a widow who was suffering the effects of the famine. And there were many, many widows in Israel, said Jesus. But Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow to help her. And then he said there were many lepers in Israel, but Elisha cured Naaman, the Syrian, who was actually a conqueror. And immediately the mood of the whole crowd changed. Now they were furious. With this one moment, they were just adoring him. And the next moment, they literally wanted to kill him. There was murderous rage in their hearts. You, you would dare to say that you're going to bless the Gentiles? So right at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus precipitated a crisis when in the synagogue, he draws attention to the fact that God is a God not only of the Jewish people, but he's a God of the Gentiles as well. And he had come to fulfill that. Then you remember in Matthew's gospel later on again, the, the feeding miracles. Remember when he fed the 5,000? Five loaves and two fish. And you know the story. I need, don't need to repeat that. But what you may not remember is that one chapter later, there is another feeding miracle. 
different number of people, different loaves, number of loaves and fish, but otherwise the same kind of miracle. Now, in a, in a gospel where an incredible life of Jesus was being portrayed for us, why would Matthew waste his time giving us a second miracle that was exactly like the first one with just a few little details until you take a look at where the second miracle happened. The first miracle was a feeding of the 5,000 in Israel. The second one was the Decapolis right on the border of Gentile territory. And it says that the people before he fed them, they were praising the God of Israel. In other words, Jesus Christ is bread not only for Jewish people. Jesus Christ was bread for the Gentiles as well. He was bread for the whole world was the significance of that. So Matthew drives home that for us as well. And by the way, not only is that sandwiched between these two, this is one of the features of many of the Gospels, especially Mark and Matthew as well, where a story is told. And then another incident, another story happens, and then the first story is repeated or completed. What that sandwich principle shows us is that the two stories are interconnected. One is obvious in its meaning and helps us understand the meaning of the other story that is not so obvious. So what do you think happened between these two feeding miracles? Not only was the first one feeding Jewish, a Jewish crowd, the second one feeding Gentile mixed crowd, in between the two, there were two incidents that Jesus talked about what unclean and clean really is. And he had this conversation with the, with the Pharisees who were all obsessed with external legalism and external cleansing. And he says, it's not the outside that makes you clean, it's what's going on on the inside. And then there was that Canaanite woman who came uh, because she had a child that needed to be healed. And the disciples said, send her away. This, this is a foreigner, this is a stranger, she's unclean. And Jesus instead blessed her and healed the daughter. Again, sending home the signal that what you guys call unclean is not unclean at all. So the two feeding miracles sandwiches two other incidents, one a teaching incident and one a healing incident that reinforces once again that the Gentiles were not unclean outsiders, but they were going to become part of the covenant people of God. And then the parable of the prodigal son, this is Luke's gospel. I mean, you all know that so well known and so many times that parable is told with a focus on the loving father heart of God, and that is certainly true. Uh, it is also told from a perspective of uh, the younger son who left home with his father's inheritance, wasted all of it, and then repented. And three times it says in those stories, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one soul that repents. So it's a story that is told to in illustrate what repentance is really like, and that is true too. But what is missed in all of this is the larger context, because that's what we sometimes don't get in these familiar stories. Even the genealogies, we're looking at the bigger stories now, right? Not just Rahab, not just Ruth, not just Mary, but the whole story. If you look at the whole story, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, you know how it begins? Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners, the, the riffraff. And the Pharisees were very upset and they were murmuring. Therefore, Jesus told them this parable. In other words, the real reason why Jesus told this parable was with the Pharisees in mind who were getting all upset because he was hobnobbing with the Gentiles. He was hobnobbing with the, the riffraff of society. That's why after the story of the younger brother coming back and having the celebration, the story doesn't end there, right? If that was the main point, the story would end there. We would know the father heart of God and we would know what repentance is all about. It doesn't end there. It ends with where the father goes out to the elder brother and he pleads with the elder brother, say, you need to rejoice that your younger brother has come back and come, please join the party. <laughs> and you know what? 
it doesn't say how it ended. We are, Jesus leaves us hanging in that parable. He doesn't tell us whether the elder brother listened to his father or not. After all, he was boasting, wasn't he? I've been with you all this time. I was obedient. I did everything. Is he going to obey now? We don't know. The story is left hanging. Now you put the ending of that story with the beginning of the story, which is the murmuring Pharisees. You get the point. The Pharisees are the elder brother. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I came for these people. Are you willing to come and join the party or not? And we are not told how the elder brother responded. We're not told how the Pharisees responded. Of course, we do know as you continue reading the story, they didn't like it at all. So they crucified Jesus because of it. But again, the emphasis, my point is that all these familiar stories, the feeding of the 5,000, the prodigals, and all has as this emphasis, the blessing of Abraham going to the Gentiles as well through Jesus. And then now come to the other one, the, the, the cleansing of the temple. You remember that when Jesus came and found the money changers making a big mess of the whole place. Of course, they were probably fleecing the people because they had to buy these sacrificial animals. They were probably price gouging that was going on as well, fattening themselves at the expense of the poor worshipers. That's why he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you made a den of thieves. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah, because you see the, the, the temple was divided into very clear sections where only a few people could go. The uh, innermost area was called the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could go only once a year on the Day of Atonement and only with the blood of a sacrificial goat. Then outside of it was called the holy place where the priests did their work. Then there was the court of the men and the men could go there. Then there was the court of the women that the women could only go that far. And outermost was the court of the Gentiles, non-Jews who were attracted to Jehovah's worship, attracted by the beautiful law of God in the commandments, so much more wholesome than their own distorted areas of worship, would often attract Gentiles who became God, they were called God-fearers, like the story of Cornelius. They could only go to the outer courts. And it was in the outer courts that all this commercialism was going on. That's why Jesus got angry with them. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For the nations. Listen, you guys. If, if a Gentile wanted to come and worship Yahweh, my father, the only place he was allowed to come to was in the outer court. And you have made that an impossible place for worship. And he was furious and he cleansed the temple. Yeah, there were the other reasons too, but this was his major one. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, from where he began right up until the end. And by the way, it was the cleansing of the temple and then the raising of Lazarus that signed his death warrant. Jesus focused on the, on the global dimension of his coming. And then, of course, Matthew's gospel ends with these words. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew, the very first gospel, begins by connecting Jesus to Abraham, to the blessing of Abraham to come to all nations, follows it up with a genealogy which includes uniquely three women, five women, three of whom are Gentiles, immediately shows us the first worshipers of Jesus being non-Israelite kings and ends with the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and sandwiched in between are all the features of Jesus' ministry that focus on the inclusion of the Gentiles. This is something that the Israelites completely failed at. 
By the way, they, they hated the Gentiles and they marginalized women. Jesus at the very beginning, uh, the gospel, Mark at the very beginning of the gospel, elevates the women by including them in the genealogy and makes three of the five of them Gentile women as well. Do you see how Matthew's gospel is put together? This was the third critical shift in my life that happened. First shift, you remember, from the world to Christ. And most of you are there with me. The second shift, nine years later, from self to the church, from private to community. Many of you are there with me there too. But the third shift, which took 14 years of gradual reading and learning, was from the church back to the world, calling the world to Jesus so they can become part of the process. From the world to Christ, from self to the church, from the church back into the world to call the world to Christ so more and more people can become part of the three-shift process. And by the way, this is what conversion is all about. This is what becoming a follower of Jesus is all about. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained all this, or I've already been near, but now this man has been a, a, a Christ follower and a relentlessly tireless worker taking the gospel to Gentiles as well for 20 years of his life. Suffered much for Jesus. And yet he says this, not that I've already obtained, I haven't arrived, he says. Or have been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Jesus Christ took a hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of his. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. What's he saying? I have not yet taken a hold of that for which Jesus Christ took a hold of me. In other words, Paul sees his whole decision to follow Jesus for the rest of his life not in ultimate or initially as some decision he made, but rather a response to being seized and taken to hold up by Jesus. So the initiative came from Jesus first. By the way, that's why when it says in John's Gospel, the familiar verses, except a man be born again, the word literally in the Greek is not born again, but is born from above. In other words, something has to happen from outside of you for you to be able to even enter the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus took a hold of me. Remember, he was heading straight to Damascus with orders to be able to arrest all Christ followers, men and women, leaders, and throw them into jail, and even voted for their death. A man like that was stopped dead in his tracks. Jesus got a hold of him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the pricks? I've chosen you. You're going to be a chosen instrument of mine. And then he says, Paul says, I haven't yet taken a hold of that for which Jesus took a hold of me. And then he goes on to say this, all of us who are mature, not just special apostles like Paul, all of us, he's writing to ordinary Christians in Philippi like you and me, all Gentiles like you and me, most of us. And he says, we all need to look at our, look at our decision to follow Jesus in this way. It was not in the first analysis, a decision that we made, but him taking a hold of us. Now you say, Sundar, that's all semantics. What does it matter? So long as I prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm going to have it. It matters everything. You know why? Because so long as Jesus, you see your decision to follow Jesus as your decision to follow him, Jesus will remain one among many other choices in your life. You chose a career. You chose a hobby. You choose a place where you live. You choose how to spend your money. You choose whom you're going to get married to. You choose what books you're going to read. Oh yeah, and by the way, I choose Jesus so he gets one and a half hours on Sunday morning. And maybe a little bit more. 
You see, Jesus will remain one among many things and you will lead a compartmentalized life where Jesus is one of many different compartments in our life. But if my conversion is Jesus taking a hold of me, then he's not one among many, many other choices. All the other choices in our life are integrated under this one choice of him taking a hold of me. Therefore, my career, my house, my spouse, my children, what I read, how I spend my money, everything is subsumed under this larger purpose. It's the integrated as opposed to the compartmentalized life. And the cause that integrates us from what we've heard so far is the blessing of Abraham going out to the whole world. This is the third critical shift that we make. From the world to Christ, from Christ, from self to the church, and from the church back into God's global agenda, where Jesus' mission becomes a central integrating reality of our life. We move from a compartmentalized life where Jesus remains one among many other choices to an integrated life under the call to be involved in the Great Commission. Now, let me give a couple of illustrations on what an integrated life as opposed to a compartmentalized life would look like. I'm thinking of in the world of business. Many of you who listen to me are businessmen and businesswomen. Let me give you an illustration from there. There used to be a gentleman that I know. I mean, he's passed on to be with the Lord now. And he liked to play golf. I don't play golf myself, but um, for those of you who love golf, that's great. I used to watch golf, still do sometimes. But this guy would choose every February to go down to Florida for a week to play golf. And you know how he timed his choices? It coincided with the global missions conference in the church. He just had absolutely no interest in what I've been talking about today at all, that dimension of life. He would call, call himself a Christ follower. So he'd, he'd made transition number one. Maybe he'd made the second turn, but not the third shift. And he would choose his golf trips to perfectly time with his the missions conference. So he wouldn't have to be there to listen to the missionaries, to talk about the global vision and all of those things. So that's a compartmentalized life. Jesus got a certain portion, golf got another portion, business got another portion. Now contrast this with this businessman. He was a pharmaceutical salesman who lived in the West Coast of the US. But in 2008, I was speaking at a conference in Thailand where about 600 international workers from all over the world had come together for a four-day conference. And of course, you know, they come from uh, ministering in places where people are speaking different languages and they haven't had the privilege of worshiping in their own language, which is English. So one of the things that is a real highlight for these conferences of international workers is for them to be able to sing in English, to be led by a worship team in English. And so this guy was a pharmaceutical statement on the West Coast, but he played the bass guitar. And the worship pastor in his church said to him, whatever his name was, let's say it was Joe. He said, hey, Joe, I'm going to Bangkok, Thailand for eight days for a conference to lead in worship would you be willing to come and play bass guitar? And he explained how what a critical contribution this would be in the lives of all these international workers who, to be able to be led in worship. So he took 10 days off of his vacation time, paid his own money to fly all the way to Thailand from the west coast of the US, so not cheap, and not for a prominent position like me who was speaking, but in the back somewhere where no one would all notice, playing the bass guitar so 600 international workers could worship Jesus and have this. Now, can you see the difference between the two people? One man ran away from the church's missions conference. The other man ran towards that because his life 
even though he was a pharmaceutical salesman, not a pastor, not an international worker, but he had an integrated life. His life, his guitar playing, his vacation time, his money, and his work was all integrated. There's an example of integration as opposed to compartmentalization from the business world. Now, let's take grandparents. I'm a grandparent. I have six children, grandchildren now. Several years ago, I was speaking at a, at a camp. And I was walking with the camp director, and he talked about the week before, the previous week speaker. Remember, in, mostly in camps during the summer, they have different theme speakers. This, the previous week was all about global missions. And the, and the speaker was saying to him that one of the greatest obstacles at that time for new recruits to go overseas was their parents. Because their parents did not want their children to take their grandparents away, grandchildren away from them. He said, in that sense, grandparents have become one of the biggest obstacles to the Great Commission. Now, I get it, folks. When my first grandchild was born, I, I had gone, I went to Russia for 10 days. 10 days, that's all. Not five years, 10 days. And in those 10 days, I was missing my granddaughter. And I remember one day thinking to myself, what if I wouldn't be able to see her for the next four years? Which would be the case if my children had gone overseas. So I understand the pain. I understand the loss. But I would like to think that if that choice had been mine to make, I would be like not like this compartmentalized grandparents that this man was talking about, but like an integrated grandfather. Because I'll tell you, another man in my congregation, he and his wife uh, felt the call to serve God in difficult places. They have made two trips to Sudan. They've made one stint in Afghanistan and one stint in Aceh during the time of the earthquake. Not easy places. The interesting thing was the fourth of these trips, they had two children by that time. So I asked him, I said, what does your uh, dad have to say about this? You're taking these grandchildren away. You know what his father, what he said, my dad said to him? Oh, he said, Sundar, my dad said to me, son, I dedicated you when you were a baby to Jesus. Go with my blessing. That's an integrated grandfather as opposed to a compartmentalized grandfather. So illustration from the world of business, illustration from the world of grandparenting. And very quickly, an illustration from retirement. I'm retired right now. Have been for five years, so to speak. But maybe redeployed would be a much better word because I haven't stopped doing the thing that I love doing. What, what's the compartmentalized retirement versus a integrated retirement look like? Here's what a compartmentalized retirement looks like. One man said it this way. I'm going to read it slowly because any of you who are retired, please listen. God may be saying something to you. Since the turn of the century, three words have characterized retirement in the, in the U.S. It can be North America, Western Europe. Detachment, relaxation, and leisure. Detachment, relaxation, and leisure. Detachment depicts the release from responsibilities and obligations of career and work. Relaxation describes the manner and mode of living. And leisure is activity that is free from toil and strain, fills the time and occupies the attention. And here's the cruncher. Hence, the main objective of retirement has been to change the retiree from a producer to a consumer in every aspect of life. Ooh, wow. But it's true, isn't it? That's why John Piper called, either him or Ralph Winter, I forget which one, called retirement a virulent disease in North America. These three words, relaxation, detachment, and leisure, 
are the marks of a compartmentalized retirement. Now, what does an integrated retirement look like? Let me take you back to that same conference in Thailand where the pharmaceutical salesman came to play the guitar. One morning, I have, came down for breakfast a bit early, and there was a gentleman sitting across the table from me. I said, oh, what are you here for? He said, oh, I'm, I'm guarding the kids because there was about 300 kids uh, for these 600 international workers. And you know, Thailand being the kind of place it is where there's vulnerability to, to, to children, they were in a separate wing. And even though I was the main speaker for that conference and everybody knew I was, I could not get in that building. This guy was there along with a few others running security. He was a retired cop from Baltimore. But what was he doing there? His was an integrated retirement. He said, oh, my retired, I now have time to look after these kids so their parents can worship God and the kids can be safe and they can be ministered to. That wasn't enough. I said to him, what do you plan to do after this? He said, oh, you know, I'm going up north. I said, why are you going up north? He said, well, this is not the first time I've come here. He said, over the years that I've come here, I've befriended a, a servant girl here and she comes from a very poor village in Thailand but they have a chicken farm that they're trying to set up as a business. He said, and I raise chicken. So he said, I go there and I help them. Every time I come here, I go and help them so that their chicken raising business can become much, much better. That's an integrated retirement. So whether it's a business situation, whether it's a grandparent like myself, or whether people are in retirement, are we going to live a compartmentalized life or are we going to live an integrated life? That's the third and final shift. I can sum it all up in one sentence. It is this, my brothers and sisters, think globally while you act locally. Think globally while you act local. I want to leave you with a story to nail this in your mind and heart. How many of you have seen the movie Apollo 13? You know that, right? You know the movie. It was a mission, space mission that got into trouble because fairly early in the mission, in the, when they were going through the routine of stirring the liquid nitrogen tanks, I think, there was a break in the piping. And the break was severe enough that the whole mission had to be aborted. And in order to protect the three astronauts, they had to shut down the command module. That's the module that comes back down to Earth at, at a speed of 25,000 miles an hour. And it gets so hot because of the re-entry friction that the front end of that command module has got a very special heat shield that just burns up protecting the people on the inside from the heat. Anyway, they had to shut down the command module and retreat back into the lunar module, which is what was going to land on the moon. And all through that time that they were there, somebody on the ground had to figure out how they would start up all the onboard batteries on the command module when the time came to come back. Because if the batteries were not started up in the proper sequence, they could exceed the maximum current capacity, they could destroy the batteries, and these three men would be literally lost in outer space. That's when somebody goes into action down below. If you remember the story, there was one guy who was supposed to be on the mission, but he couldn't go because he had come into contact with somebody who had got measles. And therefore, and we know all about contagious diseases these days, he was not allowed to go on that mission. And he was angry, he was upset, he was really mad. And when the space launch took place, he was, they showed a picture of him in his, in his home. Beer cans all around him, stubble growing over him for three days, just sulking. And then there was a break, said, we, we come to bring you a special report. And it was supposed to be the special report of the problems. But he didn't want to hear it, so he shut it down and he went out to sleep. But you see, this fellow, his name was Ken Mattingly, he was actually the expert when it came to restarting all these computer batteries. 
So they tried to get a hold of him. They couldn't get a hold of him. So three people from Mission Control Center come into his house, break open the door, come into his room, rip the curtains open, let the sunlight come in, yank the guy out of bed. And as soon as they tell him the story, he was all galvanized, completely changed because he was now a man on a mission. And so they had a mock-up of the uh, command, uh, space module, or the lunar module there. And he was busy working out the startup sequences because they had to be at the right time while his three friends were waiting for them to find out because their literal survival depended upon him doing his job. He was 11 hours into this task. And by the way, no air conditioning, nothing, because he said, I want to suffer exactly the way they are because they have to do it in this environment. I better learn how to do it in the environment they're in. So he put him through 11 hours in, can you imagine Houston and no air conditioning. And about 11 hours or so, the mission control commander sticks his head in and said, Ken, do you want a break? His response was one of those moments where Hollywood sent a chill up my spine. You know what he said? He said, if they don't get a break, I don't get a break either. Instantly, my mind went to all the international workers that have gone out from the church that I was part of in and other churches. They're not lost in outer space, but they are working with men and women who are lost spiritually working to bring them back. And they depend upon us at home to do our part. And our part, if, we, if I were to say a simulator, our part in the simulator would be one dial called prayer, another dial called giving, another dial called refreshing, encouraging, and supporting. An integrated lifestyle is one that says with the mindset of this man, Mattingly, if they don't get a break, I don't get a break either. I am commissioned as they are commissioned to the same commission by the same Lord. And as they give themselves over there, I give myself over here through the ministry of prayer, refreshing and encouraging the ministry of giving to be a send as well. So really, if we understand this final shift, I can summarize it this way. It begins with turning from the world to Christ. Then comes the definitive turning from self to the church. And then finally, if I can restate it, from the church back to the world with a mentality that says, I either get in the space shuttle or I get into the simulator. There is no other option. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you not only save us powerfully, but you save us for a mission. And then you work so patiently with us until we get it. I didn't get it for 23 years after my first turning. You waited nine years from the first to the second shift. Then you wait another 14 years of gradually moving me from the second to the third shift. So thank you. If you began this good work, you're going to finish it. So I pray for everyone who's been listening today, Father. Those who have not yet made that first turn from the world to Christ, that what they've heard in these last three weeks, Father, will give them an understanding that you, Jesus, came into this world all the way down, you, 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 you crossed an infinite distance between the creator and the creature. Not so we could start a new religion called Christianity, but that we could have a living relationship with the living God of the universe. And for those who have not yet made that turn, I pray that your spirit will work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. Open their eyes this Advent season to see the beauty of Jesus afresh. Move them to attend one of the Christmas Eve services right here in this church, Father. Where, where they will get an even clearer understanding of how to begin that. 
And then for the vast number of people who have made that, but who are still seeing it primarily as a private enterprise and have not yet made that commitment to live in an interdependent relationship with this body of believers, draw them into the, into the community, in the inner core of Bayview Glen Church, so that through their gifts and through their talents, they can live in partnership with others to accomplish your mission. And then perhaps for the largest majority of us, I pray, we may not have even been aware of the third. We've only seen our whole relationship with you as a little compartment of our lives. Rescue us from this kind of fragmentation. Integrate us under the power of the Great Commission. Give us the mindset of a Ken Mattingly that would say, I think globally, I act locally, and I don't get a break until they get a break. In Jesus' name.